Hello folks, and welcome back to Lab Life. Today we're recording from somewhere a bit more special. Because of social distancing and what's happened with the COVID-19 virus, we are staying home to do the remainder of our interviews here for the springtime going on to the summer. The current one you're going to hear with Dr. Nike is one we recorded beforehand, so we were in the office. So when you hear things like this, the quality may be a bit different, but no, we're doing our part to stay safe. Without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Dr. Nike, the chief scientist at the 7-Eleventh Human Performance Wing. We're covering what his position entails, human-machine teaming, and how your gut biome can help with hangovers. In three, two, one. Dr. Nike, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Welcome to the office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, we couldn't help but notice you're in a pretty good mood this morning. Uh, did something happen last night? Of or course. My, the weekend? Yeah, my, my, my team, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers won, you know, uh, a rivalry game. So it's always a good day when they win. So I'm in a good mood today. Yeah. So that is a, a unique fan to be here, especially in the Dayton-Cincinnati area. Uh, why are you a Steelers fan? So I'm a Steelers fan because after I finished my undergraduate education in India and I came to the U.S., uh, I touched down in Pittsburgh. And that's where I started my graduate education, uh, both at the master's level at Duquesne University and then followed that with uh, my PhD at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, my wife was also in Pittsburgh. She was my girlfriend at that time, not my wife. And she was at the University of Pittsburgh. My son is born in Pittsburgh. I was introduced to football in Pittsburgh. Uh, so I drank the Kool-Aid and became a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. <laughs> right? so, and I consider Pittsburgh to be my home in the U.S. because that's where I spent, you know, my, my, I'd say, informative years on learning about the United States and it was in Pittsburgh. So if someone's asked me where you're from, I said I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, And you still have a lot of family there, you mentioned, or just? No, everyone's moved out. There's nobody in Pittsburgh apart from friends. Uh, but we tend to go once in a while back um, to the city and just you know, go to our old hangouts. Go to our old apartment, show my kids my old apartment, graduate school apartments. That's cool. There, so. cool. Yeah. And you usually catch a lot of big games then or get a chance to see the Steelers year round? Uh, I've watched a couple games in the stadium, uh, but not, not I've, I watch it on TV now. It's, hey, it's yeah, much, it's much more comfortable to yeah. sit down <laughs> in, in your living room and watch it than be in the cold. You mentioned you went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. What did you study there? So I studied biological sciences. Uh, that was my PhD, uh, mainly focused on genetics. I'm trying to understand the mechanisms of how cells make proteins but process them and then send them to different parts in the cell and trying to understand what genetic mutations affect those processes. Okay. So what brought you to, in this field of study? Was this a fascination you had beforehand or you kind of found this? I was interested in genetics all, all along and when I was in grad school there were very few model systems that you can study and that was more relevant to the human side, right? You can do genetics in bacteria, but yeast was a, was a more uh, tractable organism to do genetics in. And that's why I decided to, you know, pursue that line of work in doing yeast genetics. And the project just so happened was my advisor said, would you be interested in working on this? I started working on things, working out, or started working out, so I said, okay, this will be my project, right? So that's how I got into the specific area of research, but I was always interested in genetics and trying to understand how genes, you know, how does genotype influence phenotype? 
So kind of going into that then, I'm um, explaining for our viewers, when you say genotype affects phenotype, mm -hmm. what do you mean by So your genes are what dictates, you know, what your, the physical outcome is, right? Uh, whether it's your appearance, uh, whether it's, you know, in disease states, you know, because there's a mutation in, in a gene in some biochemical pathway could lead to a, to a metabolic disease, could lead to, you know, a genetic disease. And that's what I mean. The manifestation of that mutation in the gene sequence is what leads to, in a in a mutant version, right? But in normal, is you know it defines who we are, right? In every living uh, organism, the gene defines you know what the behavior, but also uh, the performance of that that species is. So after doing your studies there, then how did you connect to the research lab, or how did you get here to AFRL? So, so there was another student from Carnegie uh, from AFRL that was sent on the Palace Acquire program. Uh, that was Morley Stone. He was sent when he was in the Matisse Manufacturing Directorate to Carnegie Mellon to get his PhD, and we met up and became friends. Uh, after we graduated, we moved, we went our separate ways, but we still kept in touch. And then I was going through uh, Dayton to go visit family in Kentucky. He said, why don't you stop over the lab? You might want to see what we're doing. So I said, sure, I came over. And I was right at that time, I was a postdoc in New Jersey. I was doing cancer research. And then I stopped by and he told me, oh, you know, they're starting a biotechnology effort within the AFRL and which is a manufacturing director, would I be interested? So I said, sure, maybe I'll consider it. But then uh, a year later, I applied for a position here and I ended up in the lab. So it's mainly through an acquaintance, uh, Marley Stone, that you know, I was able to come to AFRL. Very nice. You started with the materials, you said, materials director? Yeah, I started with the materials and manufacturing director yeah, back in 2000. Okay, cool. When you say biotechnology, that's not something the everyday person would associate with materials and manufacturing. How yeah. did, what's the connection there? So the connection was because, you know, when when you're looking for unique materials properties, unique biological processes that have similarity to some of the challenges that we, we, we face in, in uh, AFRL. So, so for example, going back to just even centuries ago, right, flight was inspired through examining how you know, biology does it, right? right? So again, using some of those principles that, that tough materials in nature, right? You know, the abalone shell, for example, or bone, or, you know, again, they're not using the standard material that you would use as a material scientist. They're using softer materials, but they're able to create uh, performances that rival some of your industrial-based materials. So again, what is the inspiration? How are those assembled? Because they have very unique structures, assembly, and, and how those things are, are ordered. Is very different. So that's how we started getting into the biotech spaces. Can you understand how biological systems build some of the structures and can you mimic it? Not saying that you're going to now use the biological system to create the structure, but if you knew the design processes, can you use that using conventional materials and or even softer materials and get performance that's much better than your conventional materials? That's how it all started. We were also interested in things like sensors. So for example, when I first joined uh, we were looking at how snakes sense infrared. So, okay. you know, there are snakes that sense infrared to strike their prey, right? So they're, they're sensing the heat that's coming up from the prey. So they have specific pits, they're called uh, pit organs that have infrared sensing capability. And that's how they can detect where the heat is coming from. And in those days, when you looked at infrared sensor, they were much bulkier. You need, you need to use 
almost needed to tie a refrigeration unit to to keep it cold so it can really sense the the, the temperature differential. But biology was using that using softer materials. It was not using any semi semiconductor based materials. It had no cooling and it was still able to detect with pretty good performance. So we were understanding, okay, what are the proteins involved in IR sensing, and how can you use that to build a sensor that does not require some of the cryogenic cooling and other things. Now, since then, you know, the, the IR technology has sort of exploded. That was the challenge when, when we first got into the place. So DARPA had a large program in, in trying to develop uncooled IR sensors, and that was the nexus to a lot of sensors that you see on market today that are much smaller and much more uh, efficient. If you move forward today, now you're the chief scientist of our human performance wing. Right. Um, what does it mean to be a chief scientist? And Well, a chief scientist is, you know, you're responsible for, I would call the technical culture of the organization, uh, ensuring that uh, you're, you're providing uh, guidance uh, to the director or the commander of uh, the directorate of the wing, uh, in terms of what are the research areas that we need to be invested in, trying to ensure we have the competencies in that space. So, you know, what skill sets do we need to bring to the table? What are the key technical challenges that need to be addressed? Um, and ensuring that we're meeting some of those technical milestones. And to me, that's what I see the larger role of the chief scientists, but at the same time, ensuring that we're taking care of our scientists and engineers and, and, and bringing, you know, folks into the, to the lab who can contribute technically, uh, bringing new skill, skill sets in, but also being the spokesperson for your SNEs at the leadership level, making sure just not that concerns are heard, but also ensuring that you are advocating for some of the ideas that they're putting forward, uh, ensuring that you, you're putting the technical rigor into the work that's going on in the, in the enterprise, and and building relationships with the external community. So that's what I see uh, in terms of whether it's the customers are, are warfighters, but also the chief, other chief scientists within the technical directors, but also through our major commands. And what are some of the technologies and that you're advocating for and pushing forward within your work within the human performance wing? So there, there are lots of technologies. So if you go back and look at the national defense strategy, they, they, they talk about things like autonomy, directed energy, hypersonics, biotech, AI, uh, machine learning. All of these activities have some, I would say all of this uh, big national bets have some human element to it, right? Uh, whether it's in terms of human coming in contact with the technology or whether it's a technology impacting human behavior uh, or is understanding how biological processes in the human are affected when you put our folks out in harm's way. So example, in directed energy, what happens when you're exposed to directed energy? You know, they do impact biological processes, but then we want to make sure that we safeguard provide the safeguards to our operators when they're in, in, in that battle space. How do we use things like advances in synthetic biology where you can now engineer uh, biological organisms, create new parts and devices to make materials uh, that you could have not made through conventional methods, uh, come up with ways to manipulate behavior of organisms to, to benefit uh, human performance. Um, we can also look at you know understanding how the brain functions and how can that be used to you know better rapid decision making in individuals, 
uh, how do you use AI machine learning in cooperation with the human to create a collaborative intelligence rather than just relying on just the machine or the human. Again, you have to understand what that seamless integration looks looks like. Right? How does hu the human perceive uh, the information? And how does the human information processing then perceived back by the machine? So I think the future is, is sort of a nexus between those two uh, coming together through a brain-machine interface. So I think there are lots of areas that we work across the Air Force where the human, whether the human is on the loop, in the loop, out of the loop, uh, still plays an important, important factor. I think there's a very famous saying that I like to always use is that, you know, uh, when we think of technology and when we build technology, we always want the humans to adapt to the technology, right? And I think we have failed over and over again when we create technology and asking the human to adapt to it versus where you have the technology adapt to the human. Uh, and that is what we are trying to do is ensuring that when technology is is being uh, developed, that they consider the, the human operator, the airman, in the design. Right, so you have where the technology now is more adaptable to the human operator. You just can save a lot of time and pain and yeah. increase effectiveness doing it hand in hand with um, absolutely other other people that are focusing yeah. on the lasers or whatever. You yeah, and it's just not from a human systems integration perspective. You also want to understand, um, you know, what really is going on in our own computer in the brain, like sure. how do we understand information, what's going on in the biological processes, in the human physiology. So you put pilots into you know, extreme environments, G-forces in high performance aircraft. We're really pushing the performance of all our uh, fighter planes or, or, or uh, platforms. But we still don't understand what happens to physiology, right? We're expecting our pilots to perform in those environments. So how do you optimize the performance in those environments? So you really have to understand what happens to the biological processes when they're exposed to those high altitudes of vibration or G-forces and other things. And how can you ensure they can still perform at the level that you want when they're exposed to those external uh, factors? And touching on the, uh, you mentioned like the brain-machine interface and a lot more uh, close to work with machines and the airmen. Mm -hmm. Have you seen uh, the newest generation of airmen and that going forward a little more accepting of this idea? Or is this still something that's kind of have uh, people are a bit... You can almost say maybe nervous about that idea. No, I, I think the, there's lots going on, uh, whether you look at Facebook or you look at what Elon Musk is doing with Neuralink and, and other companies out there. There's more and more uh, research, but also, I think, acceptance on to the use of, you know, what they call brain-computer uh, interfaces, right? Whether it's... Uh, uh, whether it's it's a cap that you put on your head or whether it's one of those things where your thoughts now, I think Facebook had something where your thoughts can now be converted into into words on a computer screen, right? So the, the computer will take that and automatically type words for you so you don't even have to physically type anymore. That's so again, crazy. how do you convert that? So again, there is, I think the newer generation are going to be more accepting uh, of some of these technologies. Uh, there's some parts in the world where the people experiment with uh, implants, right? Implants for, with RFID chips in their, in their fingers so, so they can open their, their doors or, or you know, log into a computer. I think it's, it's going to be a way of the future that we need to start thinking about how do we leverage some of those advances in, in, in those areas in the brain-machine interface or the human-machine interface and, and use them in our operational settings. 
And kind of like expanding on that, you mentioned that this could, in terms of even the warfighter and beyond, this could make not our not only our lives easier, like locking into computers, getting into rooms, but you mentioned, let's say, someone's uh, in a, a dangerous environment. This could give them that advantage because they have, whether it be sensors, connection to their team. Like mm-hmm. this could just make uh, not only the airman's life safer, but operators in general. Absolutely. Uh, you know, think about wearable devices. Right now, some, a lot of you carry Apple Watches or Fitbits. You've seen some of the uh, stories where, you know, they've, they've been able to recognize someone having have fallen down and able to call 911. Again, I think there's lots of potential of using some of those wearable devices where you can understand what's going on with a person's biological, physiological processes and when they're in danger, you know, appropriately, you know, send the alerts that you need to uh, to the commander or to a teammate. But also when you think about, you know, taking care of the injured in the battle space, right? You know, if you're going to take care of a lot of folks in the battle space who, who are injured and able to put all these wearable devices on them and monitor them on a central, you know, uh, device, mobile device, you know, you can provide the appropriate attention that's needed to the folks who need the most urgent care uh, in those environments. So I think there's lots of potential on using some of those devices, uh, you know, to make environments just not safer but appropriate care that's given to to the warfighter especially from a human performance standpoint but also optimizing right so you know look at basic training when you do that in texas in 102 105 degree uh, weather you know that you have hydration issues right heat stress uh, and you know unfortunately we've had fatalities in, in those environments so can you use you know a simple wearable devices that can look at hydration levels of an individual core body temperature so we can prevent any of this fatalities happen in the future. So I think there's lots of potential there where you can, you know, make some very simple changes into training or providing the appropriate rest, ensuring people are getting enough sleep and hydration when they need to by using all these devices that are already commercially available. All you now need to figure out is how do you engineer them to work in our environments. Yeah, I think, is it the SHARK program, Survivor Health? Um, awareness responders kit is kind of looking into that for the exactly. training yeah. to monitor to make sure those if we can avoid um, issues. You know. Yeah, and, and mainly physical stress, right? Uh, there's also the fish that you know some of our team members are developing for the for for the special operation community, where they look at oxygen levels when they do their shallow water training, so they don't really black out in those environments. So you can understand what the oxygen levels are in those individuals. So you can provide an alert uh, to when uh, O2 levels when the individual fall below uh, uh, the normal zone. And with uh, the idea of like shark and fish as monitoring devices, um, are there other any uh, big projects or programs going on in the 7-Eleven currently to help the warfighter in that field? Well, they are, and not necessarily in the wearable devices. I think one of my uh, favorite ones, I think, is in the area, which I think is, is... is really bringing cutting-edge sciences in the area of synthetic biology where we're looking at how can you engineer the microbiome in the gut to influence cognitive processes. Uh, that's already been demonstrated by others outside of the Air Force Research Lab where the microbiome in your gut really influences cognitive processes. And there have been lots of studies both in, in animals, uh, mainly in, in animals, I should say, where if you tweak or engineer the, the, the gut microbiome, you can increase cognitive processes and resiliency in individuals. So how can you ensure optimized performance in some of the stressful environment? Because, you know, our body responds to stress by releasing uh, different uh, neurotransmitters and other things uh, that could be detrimental to 
performance. So how can you now create a, microbi a microbiome or engineer a microbiome that can sense that and provide the right neurotransmitter to increase cognitive resilience and performance in these environments? So with testing of the gut biome, how, even a basic question, how long does it take to change your gut biome? Let's say you change your diet. Yeah. So uh, it, it's it's a very complicated process. So we're in early stages uh, of, of research, uh, but you know you go to the grocery store and you can buy probiotics right now, right? You can buy in you know, a yogurt, Activa, uh, whatever you call it, Dan Actives, I think is another one. Uh, they have you know naturally occurring uh, microbes that's good for you know gut health. How how long they're persistent? You know uh, how how long does it to change your your gut? microbiome over time to a beneficial community still is a lot of ongoing research right there's a lot of work that's been funded through the NIH and everyone else uh, outside on trying to look at doing some human studies the importance of uh, on it's not the importance but the impact of uh, of the microbiome community on on human health uh, but also how can you now develop the right microbiome to overcome some of these disease states that can be prevented by having the right gut uh, microbiome. Uh, I think they've already shown in a couple of studies uh, that there are certain microbiological species, when engineered appropriately, can provide life-saving interventions in people who have deficiencies in metabolic pathways, for example, using now an engineered microbiome. And with the airmen, then, this is something you mentioned is an ongoing or field we're studying, but this is now part of the um, regimen, like, for their training. They are actively helping cultivate that new gut biome, or is that just studies of airmen's gut biome where we're at currently? So we're not, we're not there yet. Right okay. now, we just look, we have a couple studies looking at uh, folks who are deployed and how does the micro gut microbiome change over time. So I'm sure everyone knows about tra traveler's diarrhea, uh, which is one of the things that most of our folks, when deployed, out overseas uh, come down with uh, because you know you're exposed to a complete different flora in in in, uh, in that environment and that does cause uh, a lot of intestinal GI issues uh, so we look at okay well how does the gut microbiome change over time once you're deployed now you start to begin to understand a little bit on the community and then what are the right interventions that you need to uh, provide uh, if the changes in that gut population and tying back to the question as well, you kind of mentioned how it does help time cognitive performance. Mm -hmm. um, so with some of the early studies we're doing now, you mentioned there is a, maybe not significant, but definite proof that like, hey, this gut biome, if we have it cultivated the right way, can really help keep a, a sharp, attentive warfighter and even just sharp, attentive. Yeah, so uh, there's, there's already been, you know, because you always do a lot of these studies in, in animal models, so mm -hmm. it's already been shown to have beneficial impact. Now, the leap of faith right now is now taking that from an animal model to a human model. Mm -hmm. There are lots of challenges associated with that because those things have to be FDA approved and other things. But a lot of focus right now is trying to understand, at least in an animal model, uh, what is the impact, right? If you engineer the, the, the microbiome, introduce it into the gut of an, an animal system, you know, how does that impact cognitive processes? How long is it persistent? You know, uh, how does that, you know, what are the long-term effects and other things? Those are still studies that are ongoing. Hopefully in the next couple of years, I think we'll have a, very, a pretty good understanding of what's going on. And on top of that, you know, there are lots of companies now uh, outside uh, in, in the industrial community that are looking into the microbiome pretty well. So there's a very famous 
uh, news article that I saw, for example, for hangovers, uh, you can actually have a gut microbiome can you know overcome some of the hangover effects, right? Uh, so there's a company, I forget the name of the company, that's already selling this. It's a little expensive, it's like $40 a pop or something like that. Uh, but there's already now, you know, uh, companies building or selling products that use, uh, you know, probiotics uh, to overcome some of the other issues, performance issues that humans deal with, uh, mainly hangover in this that's case. That's pretty big though. Hey, a lot of people be interested. So yeah. <laughs> that's super funny. I had no idea. We can make this our New Year's episode, right? Yeah, honestly, <laughs> at this point, our folks, get ready. <laughs> Pay attention to your gut bio. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, taking a step back from um, gut biomes and synthetic biology, uh, talking about um, the 7-Eleven, mm -hmm. uh, how did human performance kind of help tie to the evolution of flight? That's a big thing many people may not even think of. They think of the technological advances, the Wright brothers, and even thinking some of the airmen, but not right. really thinking about what their bodies had to go through right. during that process. So, you know, historically, I think the Air Force has had a lot of work in this space, right? You know, the first centrifuge. Uh, where we tested the impact of G-forces on, on humans was conducted by the Air Force. It, it goes back decades uh, because we want to know how does performance, uh, how does it impact performance when you expose those individuals to Gs and what's the physiological impact to it. Um, so again, there, there's lots of things on trying to understand uh, human physiology, human behavior, how that influences you know, operation, uh, but also in the design of weapon systems. Uh, the connection is not as strong, uh, and that's why the reason we, we're doing a lot of this work is to build that tighter connection so we can influence the design of future systems. Um, and I think evolution of flight or, or evolution of weapon systems in general uh, is the technology has always been leaning forward, not necessarily with the human in mind, uh, and I think what we have been trying to, you know, add into the conversation is that we want to think about the human and how the human will use that technology. What's the impact of the human? So as you design, you understand what are the, the risks associated with it, how does it impact health and performance, and then how would one enable, enhance, sustain, restore uh, health or performance in those uh, environments. And I think that's the focus of, for example, what the 7-Eleven is doing is, is enabling, enhancing, sustaining, and restoring performance and health of our airmen in an operational environment, when they, whether it's you know, exposed to environmental or operational environments, but also in handling of you know, weapon systems. So uh, going in the future then, this kind of ties into almost what you mentioned with, uh, you know, the machine learning, uh, going into the gut biome. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of programs helping do that with like helping bring technology to help with the airmen and make it easier to implement. Uh, are there any big, I know you mentioned some projects earlier, but anything with maybe flight in mind or even with testing with human performance that, you know, the 7-Eleven's working on to help make it easier for, let's say, pilots to stay up in the sky yeah. longer? So a lot of things that we're doing right now is, is looking at how can we develop sensors to monitor uh, physiological performance, uh, physiology. So, you know, like in an aircraft, we have all the sensors that tell you how the aircraft is doing, gives you, you know, pretty much almost real-time data on, on, on the performance. I forget how many different parameters are measured per second of on an aircraft. But right now we don't have anything for the airmen, right? And we put them in, in, in such extreme environments, 
we would like to know really how does that influence you know their physiological performance so we have some work uh, you talked a little bit of the shark and other things yeah. again taking some of the same concepts uh, how can you uh, monitor individuals in those environments so we're looking at wearable devices that can be you know incorporated into a flight suit or into a life support system uh, that can monitor the individual's uh, performance can look at for example oxygen levels in an individual uh, and how can you ensure they're optimized for uh, for that individual in, in that environment? I don't know, it's created a visual in my mind, like thinking of how we monitor the plane, but we don't think about maybe the most important part, you know, is, 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 the, the, pilot, pilot, is right? the pilot. Is the pilot, or absolutely the most yeah. important part that we're not monitoring them. That's a yeah. good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and wouldn't it be great if you, if you're going back to this, sort of this human machine or brain machine, a different level where the pilots are now connected to the plane. So now do, not only the pilot knows how the plane is performing, the plane also knows how the pilot is performing. So whenever there is an issue on either side, if you have a proper integration, you know, there can be appropriate takeover of actions by either the plane or the machine in this case, or the human, right? So if the human is not performing as well, or oxygen level is, is lower than where it should be, has passed out, can the machine now take over to ensure one you will now increase oxygen supply to the to the to the pilot or you know you know come up with safety maneuvers so ensuring that you know the the, the plane is in, in in a safe flight mode till the pilot can now re, re, regain consciousness okay so again that was only possible now if I know what I can measure an individual yeah. and then make sense of that data and then put that into into a computer and then Pull you know data from from the plane. Make sure there's an impedance matching between the two, and now you can make decisions based on the data that you get from both pieces. Right? Yeah, that'd be amazing to yeah. see like a vice versa. Like a pilot can help make sure if the machine's failing to save it, which we've seen yeah. in the past. Or again, like you said, it can yeah, I look at it like sure. a check engine light, right? Yeah, exactly. Like you have yeah. a car, you have a check engine light. How come we don't have a check engine light on on a human? For us, yeah, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. 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 And the wing has influence. We've had earlier episodes on uh, the touch on auto GCAS, where yeah. you know if, if the pilot blacks exactly. out and yeah. they're not responding, and something's you know the plane's headed <laughs> headed to hit something, it'll it'll, it'll correct. It'll, yeah. yeah, exactly. So in this case, you know what you're looking at is is if the example I would give here is if, if the oxygen levels in an individual is is lower than expected based on the measurements you're taking. Now, how do you ensure you have the backup oxygen system on the plane kick in and and ensure that now you come back to the appropriate uh, saturated O2 levels on the blood. Actually providing medical support, essentially. You know, maybe the future is, if if something happens, maybe there is, there's a way you can intervene, you know, and, 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 and provide the medical support that you need. So speaking of a lot of this, uh, really incredible stuff you guys are working on in the 7-Eleventh, um, what kind of STEM outreach programs do you run for, let's say, like kind of K through 12, that range, to help bring people in or kids in to kind of get excited about working on things like this? So we have a, we have a couple of different activities. One, you know, we work with the, with the Dayton STEM School, for example. Uh, we have the, the Grill, uh, which is a gaming research uh, lab where we're, we're trying to get kids interested in, in gaming research. Uh, this is just not playing video games, but how do you create the right virtual environments, right? Uh, what we're trying to get, get them excited is about coding, is about visual graphics, other things. Uh, how do you use things like AR, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, 
and how do you create those environments so that they're realistic? Right? So again, work quite a bit with uh, the Dayton STEM school in that space. Uh, we have a facility down here in, in the Dayton STEM school uh, where just not students from the Dayton area, but we also bring in others uh, who uh, collaborate on different projects. Then through uh, the high schools in the local area, uh, you know, my scientists and engineers in the wing serve as mentors uh, on science fair projects. Uh, one of the famous ones, I think more uh, widely known ones is the, the global competition in called iGEM, which is the International Genetic Engineering Machines uh, competition where you know kids over the period of six months prior to the competition are working on some challenge problem uh, that involves synthetic biology where you now create new parts or create new organisms that have new functions and then you compete at the global stage right over thousands of teams from all over the world compete in so we work for example Carroll High School here in, in Dayton uh, they've I think competed in the competition this is a this is the third time going in, and they won a medal in, in every competition. Right? The last, just recently, they won silver uh, for some of the work they did on, on detecting some molecule in an environment using a, a microorganism they genetically engineered. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, again, that's how we engage with the STEM through different programs, mentorship. Uh, we have what we call job shadow kind of uh, programs where kids come in, spend a day or two, uh, I've had uh, a couple of kids who have been in my office and just see uh, what does the chief scientist do in the wing, or what does a re lab researcher do in a, in a, on a daily basis in the lab here. Uh, we do go out and talk to kids in, in different schools, uh, career fairs and other things, uh, but mainly giving them opportunities through various internship programs that we have, at least for the high school. One of the well-known ones is the Wright Scholar Program, where we bring in high school kids uh, to come spend a couple of weeks, uh, anywhere between six to, I think, eight weeks here in the labs uh, during the summer period to get exposed to the to the research. That's an amazing opportunity at the high school level. You're thinking how I might have spent my summers. Yeah, <laughs> I, wish, I wish I knew of this way. Well, I was in India, but I'm, I mean, I'll, my kids, I think my kids had an opportunity, right? So again, there are lots of opportunities here where whether you're in high school, whether you're an undergrad, you're in grad school, uh, various internship programs where you can come in and, and work in the lab uh, and get exposed to the kind of cool research that's going on. Because, you know, time and time again, you know, when I go to universities and, and other places I visit, they're, they're very surprised on the kind of research that goes on in the lab uh, because, you know, they don't know about AFRL. They, know that they might know of AFRL, even if they've, but they don't know what kind of research gets done because it's okay, eyes and barges, how can I really work in the Air Force Research Lab? Well, there are lots of different research projects that goes on that really would use your skill set or you would find exciting to come and work here. Right? Yeah. yeah, we're not just aerospace engineers. We're just not just aerospace engineers. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We have a very diverse workforce and that's what makes us very unique. So um, a question for you here too. Um, do you have any uh, favorite pieces of technology or favorite researchers here in like Air Force history? Well, I, I would not say Air Force history. I'll say mainly maybe from a DOD history. Right? Yeah. One of my, uh, I think, I would say an idol uh, is Vannevar Bush. So Vannevar Bush was an engineer at MIT during the World War, during World War II. You know, he was very concerned at the advancement of technology that the Germans were beginning to acquire and was worried that the U.S. might lose the war. Right? And he decided to quit his job at MIT 
uh, and went and had, I think, I forget, someone was, I was, I was hearing a podcast, had a five-minute meeting with FDR, I think. Was FDR during that time? I mm-hmm. think it was FDR. Yeah. I might want to check on that. <laughs> but had a meeting with, with the president at that time uh, to talk about, you know, we need to be investing in, in science and technology uh, in the nation. And, you know, because of him, the, the modern-day research labs that you see across the country, NIH, NSF, DARPA, all sprung out from his vision at that time. Because he, he knew that, you know, technology was the key differentiator that will, will give us strategic and as well as tactical advantage, just not during World War II, but in the future. From a national security standpoint, we need to ensure that we are maintaining, you know, the technology edge. So I, I, I see him as, as, a, as my idol, right, because not only was he an engineer, uh, he knew how to work with the operators, so he really knew what the challenges were that the military was facing, and how do you develop the right transfer of knowledge between the scientist and the engineer. I think he was key. He was not like this Moses figure who came and said, no, you know, I'm going to solve all your problems, but he, get, he got the right people in the mix to build that ecosystem that allows efficient transfer of brilliant ideas from the scientist to, to a, a product that the warfighter uses, right? Along that, he also built the larger ecosystem with the research labs within, within the DOD, but also the funding agencies and other things that, that need to support this kind of research. So I think we have reaped the benefits of that for, for decades. So. Absolutely. I feel inspired. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah, there's, a, there's an autobiography. You can buy the book, Vannevar Bush at Amazon, uh, <laughs> for $20. It's a 500-page book. Uh, but it's it's a pretty uh, nice, uh, I'd say, biography of, of Vannevar Bush uh, that tells you his story and and the things he's done. So, so I, I, I consider him to be an, an idol of mine. I've just been fascinated, uh, just learning more and more about him. I knew of, you know, we have a, a fellowship within DOD called Vannevar Bush Fellow, which is a very prestigious award that we give to a very select uh, group of uh, uh, academic researchers uh, through a very competitive process. So, uh, you know, that's sort of how it intrigued me to learn a little bit more uh, about what Vannevar Bush did. And it's just fascinating every time you learn something new that he's done. That's incredible. And for great gift, gift ideas this uh, holiday season, the autobiography could be right up there. 500 pages, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's light we'll reading. Go, we'll, we'll go for the new year, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.